All right, well, hey, good morning. Boy, it's great to see you guys here. Thanks for joining us. Uh, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors uh, here. Just want to continue to add my welcome to all the welcomes that you guys have already received. If you're joining us online, thanks uh, for joining us uh, as well. So, hey, we're going to dive back into uh, the gospel uh, of Mark. Um, but before we do, I want you to imagine like a Sunday uh, like today. Sundays as we know them in Scripture are often talked about as a, as a Sabbath day. Sabbath days are holy, uh, a day of rest, you know, before the Lord. And, and so I want you to imagine, put yourself back in the first century, right, as Jesus is in the town of Capernaum. And, and that synagogue would have been about kind of half the size of this building in here. You kind of cut it down the middle and, you know, that lengthwise, and that's the synagogue. And so everyone would have started to, to walk and, and make their way to the synagogue on the Sunday or the Saturday morning as they, they do it, the, the, the Shabbat. And so they would have gone, and guys, there's so many rules and boundaries around uh, the Sabbath that there's a certain number of steps that you could walk even in a day. And so they had to be careful about where they went and so how they chose to spend their Sabbath day in a big pay, and a big part of it was to go to the synagogue. And so as they, they begin to file into this building in first century times, right, half of this space and the walls and the outside are all stone and so it's echoey inside. And, and as Jesus would have entered in, in the front door, you think that there would be chatter. Oh, it's Jesus, Jesus here. Jesus, Jesus. I hope he's going to teach. I hope he's going to teach because he's way better the Pharisees who are sitting in the corner, by the way. Probably can hear it bouncing off the walls. They're like, no, no. And Jesus enters into the room. You see, the Pharisees are there for this Sunday for one reason and one reason alone. They are not there for the Sabbath. They are not there to hear God's word preached from the Old Testament. They're not here to hear Jesus. They are there to watch and see if Jesus will perform a miracle on the Sabbath for the sole purpose that if he does, that they can then accuse him in front of everybody. So here they are, the Pharisees sitting in the corner. And you got to wonder, maybe, because there's this guy in a withered hand, you got to wonder, maybe they brought a guy from town who had a withered hand and he's their bait for Jesus. And maybe they like push him into the room, like, here you go, 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 play your part. And as he walks into the middle of the room, Jesus sees a man with a withered hand and he sees the Pharisees watching. And he's like, I know what you're doing. I know, I know what you're doing. But instead, doesn't matter. He says, come here. And he calls this man over in the middle of the synagogue, Sabbath day. And he asks the question, he says, is it lawful? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To, to save a life or to kill? And he asks it directly to the Pharisees, who, by the way, have zero answer. It's like, I just picture them looking at each other like, I don't know, is it lawful? Is it, is it, is it not? And all of a sudden, right, the whole thing is turned against them because they got no answer and they have silence. And Jesus is grieved. Gosh, really, guys? Come on, is there, is there a bad time ever to do good in somebody's life to bring restoration and healing and hope and, and to bring the gospel and to bring right shalom back into the world? Is there ever a bad time to do that? The answer in Jesus' mind is no. And yet for them, they've got so many rules and guidelines and boundaries around the Sabbath that they can't even touch it. And it's silence in the room. 
And you begin to wonder if everybody else, all the chatter has gone down and they're beginning to listen and there's silence. And as Jesus looks, and it's one of the few times in scripture where you'll see Jesus angry. And he looks at them with anger, not because he hates them, but because he knows that they have a hardness of heart. He's like, you guys have missed everything. Everything that you've been trying to follow, you've missed the heart of God. He says, stretch out your hand. Guy stretches out his hand. However he does it, but he heals him. It says his hand is restored. And that's what Jesus does. He makes broken things right. He brings them into right working order. That's what Jesus is about. That's shalom. That's peace. That's the gospel at work. As he enters in with this loving and compassion, he heals and restores. If you guys are just joining us, we've been in this in the Gospel of Mark for two months now, um, two months. And one of the things that we have said is that the Gospel of Mark is fast moving. It is hard hitting. It's fast moving. Why? Because we're in chapter three, only three chapters in after two months, and we're already at the beginning of year three of his ministry. We've already just summed up. We've skimmed through the first two years of Jesus' life in the first two chapters. It's like, hey, we got no time for a cute six pound, three ounce baby Jesus. We're moving right to the discipleship. We're moving right to the kingdom. We're moving right to that spot where we can go to the cross. That's Mark's motive as he, as he lays out his gospel. And so it is a fast-moving book, but it's hard-hitting. We've been tracking the authority of Jesus as he is the king who is establishing his kingdom. This gospel hope and restoration, right, which has culminated in his ability, not just his declaration, but his ability to forgive sins. And so as a result of everything that Jesus is doing so far in these first couple years, just the first two chapters in Mark, all of a sudden you got two groups of people. You got one, the group who love him. It's the group of people who flock to him because they know their desperation, all the brokenness and the, and the bitterness and the disease and the healing that they need. And so they flock to him for right reason or wrong reason. doesn't matter. They love him. And then you got those who don't. You got those who are self-righteous. You got the people who are like indifferent. Man, eh, Jesus, whatever. I don't need that. I don't need that guy. I don't need that in my life. So you got those who love him and you got those who hate him. But here's how that passage, as we're setting up the context for our story today, here's that, how that passage ends. It says, the Pharisees, after that, he restores his hand. It says, Pharisees went out, and immediately, there's that uthus, the idea of the urgency of the kingdom at work and at play. They held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Guys, here's the deal. We have unlocked a whole new layer of conflict in this story the trajectory has been set, and the cross is the destination. That's where Mark is taking us, and that's where Jesus starts. And so here we jump in, in chapter 3, verse 7. Here's how we start. We're going to look at a passage that's probably familiar to some, and maybe it's totally brand new to others, but we'll try and give you a, a little bit of a fresh light on this. Okay, here we go, verse 7. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. Okay, like, you know, just with withdrawing to the sea, I mean, I'm guessing that everybody in here, right, like when you know that work is just, light, it's just complicated and hard and you go, man, I just need a break. What do you do? You fill out that form and you get that vacation request in and then your supervisor, you know, they, they, they approve it or whatever and then so you go and you get on your vacation but here's the problem with vacations is that your work still doesn't really go behind, does it? Work oftentimes catches up with you. And you're thinking about emails and texts and stories and your brain is still at work. I mean, how many of you guys have seen the movie What About Bob? 
okay? If you haven't seen it, it's funny, right? It's about a guy um, who's working with another guy as a client, and, and so he does his daily or weekly appointment, and then so he says, see you later, I'm going on vacation. What happens is that Bob shows up at his vacation home. And so everywhere Bob, everywhere like, this guy goes, Bob shows up. <laughs> there's Bob, there's Bob, there's Bob. And the guy is like, leave me alone. Leave me alone. I mean, can you imagine being Jesus? I mean, when was the last time that you went on vacation to your lake house and 10,000 people showed up? Hey, we're here. Just, you know, we're just waiting for you. Because that's what happens with Jesus, right? Can you imagine what it would have been like in this moment? So Jesus, he's like, I'm just going to withdraw. I'm going to take a little time with the disciples. We're going to go get some time together. But what happens is this great crowd begins to follow Jesus. Can you just imagine how wear and tearing that would be on anybody other than Jesus? Sometimes I wonder why the disciples were so cranky. Maybe it's because they never got a vacation. Because they're constantly with Jesus over and over, Right? And so here's Jesus, and you're like, hey, is, really, is it really that big of a deal that a crowd shows up? Like that's, we've been tracking the popularity of Jesus at this point, but here's the deal. This crowd is different, guys. This crowd is different because not just you have people from Galilee and Judea, which makes sense because that's where he did the bulk of his miracles, right? Now you have people who are actually coming from Jerusalem. So the big city, you got the rural folk up here, but all of a sudden those city, those hoity-toity city people from down in Jerusalem with running water and cool things like that, they come up and they're like, hey, we want to know Jesus. We want to meet Jesus. So all of a sudden they're traveling hundreds of miles. It's not just a normal crowd. Below Jerusalem is the region of Idumea. So now you got people from even further south, but it's not just the Jews, people. This crowd is changing. Jesus' popularity is growing. He's attracting new people because now it's not just the Jews. It's not just the Hebrew people. It's the people to the east of the Jordan River. You see, that's the people who have been Gentiles. They are pagans and they're on the east side and they cross the river and they're like, east side meets west side. What's up, Jesus? We're here. We're hearing about you. We want to know more about you and what you're doing. And so they show up, and then you got people from Tyre and Sidon, that's to the north. So all of a sudden, you look at Jesus' crowd, and you go, man, like Jesus got people coming from every single direction except for the west, and that's because that's where the sea. Unless the, like the lost city of Atlantis like boop, pops out, or mermaids like crawl onto land. You see, here's the deal, like Jesus got people coming from everywhere. And, and the reality is that it just started with them hearing it, right? The Greek word here is, is akousantes, and you're going to find it later. It's actually in, in verse 20 and 21. It's the same word. It's that when people hear about it, this is when they begin to come. I love it in certain contexts that that word can actually mean to obey. Like you hear something, right? And it's not just that I hear it, it's that I actually listen. I have a five-year-old. There's a difference between listening and hearing, right? And so Here's the thing, like there's a sense of obeying or obedience. And here's what I love, like picturing in this moment, as people are hearing about who Jesus is, all of a sudden you realize there's something intrinsic and powerful about Jesus because he's the creator and they are the created. And there is something that they know is broken inside of them. And so as they hear about Jesus, there's this natural gravitation in which we are being obedient to come to our creator because that's the way that we are designed. We're designed to be in relationship with God, created in the image of God and designed to be in relationship with him. And so naturally, these people then start coming to Jesus. But again, remember, they're traveling for hundreds of miles. 
I think it's, it's probably a pretty normal thing um, that uh, people who travel far will not be denied. Like, we've talked about Taylor Swift in the past, and I mean, I'm not a Swifty, I enjoy her music, but I wouldn't go to concert, but I'm just saying, just I'm giving you the context just so that you know where I stand. But there are people who would go, man, we're going to go to that concert, and we're going to go see Taylor Swift. What happens if she, doesn't, if she doesn't show up? They're like, we will find you. We will find you. We traveled hundreds of miles and paid hundreds of dollars for our tickets. We will find Taylor Swift, and she will perform if it's a private audience for me in her hotel. Right? Because people who travel far will not be denied. And so what happens here in this moment is that they become a mob. You're like, oh, not a bad mob if there is, you know, if there's a good, such thing as a good mob, but they become a mob. What do mobs do? They mob. That's what they do. And so here's what I picture. I picture like this group of people like in the desert, right? These are all people who are desperate for Jesus. And it's like, you know, there's... There is, you know, and then they see him and they turn. And it's like a herd of animals like kicking up dust, right? Like wherever Jesus is, they find him and they go. Right? But that's why this, this, this crowd is different, guys. It's different. Here's why. Look at verse 9. It says, and he told the disciples to have a boat ready for him. Because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Guys, we've been tracking the popularity of Jesus, but boy, this escalated quickly. Because Jesus is now actually, is actually afraid for his life. And so he's afraid that they're going to crush him. So he tells the disciples, he's like, hey, you need to have a boat. Get one of your boats and have it ready. Go on the water. So that way I'm not like, like pressed in. Because here's what happens while he's on shore. Look at the end of that in verse 10. It says, for he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Can you imagine that if all of the, the people with diseases from Fargo-Moorhead just came and swamped you and pressed in around you just to touch you? Just picture that for a moment. Everybody with diseases pressing in around you. Because that word press can actually in some context mean attack. Now, here's the deal. They're not attacking Jesus, but it gives you a picture of what's going on in the soul, in their heart, because what they know is that they have a lot of needs in life and only Jesus has the healing that they need. And so they will fight to get to Jesus. I don't think we think about it that from that perspective very often. You think about people who don't know Jesus, on the inside, it's a fight fighting for answers. I'm fighting to know. And people are drawn to the real Jesus. And so they press in around him. Guys, this is the beginning of year three. We're in chapter three of Mark, and Jesus has already got death on all sides. He's got those who love him, and he's got those who hate him. Who are the people who hate him? The Pharisees and the Herodians. What are they doing? They're like, man, let's kill him. What are the people who love him doing? They're like, hey, we love you. Crunch. Because there's the danger. He's got death on all sides of him. And I think we're exposed at, at a greater level the needs, not just of people, but the needs of everybody. Because as you look down at the crowd, it's not just the Jews, it's the Gentiles included. And so we begin to see the broader needs, not just the depth, but the broadness of the needs. And just like, hey guys, I know that you guys got needs. I know that in that crowd, there's so many needs. Just like in this, in this crowd this morning, there are so many needs. And Jesus loves people and he cares about all those needs. But at the end of the day, while he's here for only three and a half years in his ministry, one need rises to the top. And that's sin. He's like, I got to get, get to the cross. That's where I got to go. That's where we need to be. 
This is where we get into the plan. Look at verse 13. It says, and he went up on the mountain, right? And he called to him those whom he desired, right? Now he goes up and it's not just, so the crowd has probably dispersed. Everyone's tired and hungry. They, they go off. They are setting up tents, you know, somewhere. Or maybe they started traveling home. I don't know. But, but Jesus goes up on the mountain, and it's not just that he needs a breather, which I'm sure that he does because there's a human side to that component, right? Just need a, a space to breathe and to think, really. But, it's, it's just, but this whole moment is fraught with intention. It's not that Jesus is like, hey, I just need a break. You guys, <laughs> your guys' needs are way too much. Sounded like a horse. That was weird. You know, like your needs, it's not just that. It's like, gosh, he's, this, this whole thing is fraught with intention. You go into Luke and Luke 6 records the same thing. And what happens? It says, Luke said that Jesus went up onto the mountain to what? To pray. And it's not just that he prayed. It says that he prayed all night. You know, like, I, like, I don't know like about you guys, but I'm a pretty hard sleeper once I go to sleep. And I've heard of people who wake up at midnight and do like midnight vigils, you know, for prayer. And I'm like, you wake me up. I'm like, yep, yeah, okay, dude. <sighs> He's up all night praying. He's up all night. He's fraught with intention. And so what's going on in Jesus' mind, right? He's like, I, you know, I just wonder if like Jesus is thinking as, he, as he's up on this perch, right? The mountain as he's in the prayer, like he can look down and he can see right where that crowd was. And he can remember the faces of them. He can remember the needs, the diseases, the demons, all of that which entailed. And it wasn't just the Jewish people. It was the Gentiles, and so you begin to see the greater needs of a much larger people. And as if you would raise your eyes up on the mountain, and from that high perspective, you see across the land, you see out all the way across the Sea of Galilee to the south, you see all of the Golan Heights to the east, which is where the pagans live, and to the north. And then to the, to the west, you have the sea. But far beyond the sea, yet to be discovered many, many Years later is North America where we are today. And you see, I think you're Jesus in this moment as he's looking and you're just picturing that crowd going, I've got, we've got to get the cross, that we've got to get the gospel and the message of, of all of this, all that I came to do, we've got to get that message, not just through here, not just through the 12 tribes of Israel, not just in the surrounding regions, but everywhere for the rest of time. And here's the deal, guys, it's not going to be solved by adding a couple services to the synagogue in Capernaum. That ain't going to work. And by the way, you know, even Jesus knowing this plan, you know, he knows he's going to have to die. And that's going to be a hard time for his followers. And so as, as he's thinking probably about that, he's like, I'm going to be... I'm going to be gone for a couple of days, and that's going to be challenging. But then three days later, guess what? I'm going to raise from the dead, and that's going to be great. And everyone's going to be like, man, that was so good, Jesus. Best miracle ever. Here's your ministry back. And Jesus is going to be like, nope. It's not my ministry anymore. It's yours. Because I'll be here for a bit, but then I'm going to send. I'm going to go be with the Father, because that's where I need to be. My ministry is now your ministry. And so here he is at the perch of this mountain. I guess I wonder, is Jesus saying this? God, who do you have for me? Who is it that you're going to give me to multiply this gospel message and gospel life into? And that's what he's praying. Praying hard. What's it like to pray hard? <laughs> to really long and want for something that bad. May 7th. 
1989, skip a few thousand years, we're going to go to something very unspiritual, but it works, okay? Chicago Bulls are playing the Cleveland Cavaliers. Eastern Conference Finals. Six seconds left on the clock, and Michael Jordan hits a shot to, to move them up, 99 to 98. Three seconds, or excuse me, six seconds left, and, and Cleveland inbounds the ball, and they get the ball, and they get a nice little layup, and all of a sudden, Cleveland is up 100 to 99 with three seconds left. Guys, I was eight years old at the time. I idolized Michael Jordan. That's a sin. Don't duplicate that. I idolized Michael Jordan. My eyes were glued to the TV. Guys, I have never hoped or prayed for anything harder in my life to that moment. Not today, but then. Oh, man, I was praying. Three seconds left. This is a huge deal, guys. At the time, this is a series to five. The series was tied two to two. Whoever wins goes to the NBA Finals. Three seconds left. I remember watching. I just remember watching that screen. That whole thing is burned into my in, right, right into my brain, you know. And uh, I remember they are inbounding the ball. And then Michael Jordan comes. He gets the ball and he dribbles back to the free throw line and he jumps. And I can't jump as high as he can, so I won't embarrass myself. But he goes up. He moves sideways. And as he's moving sideways, he shoots the ball. And it's like, guys, life was in slow motion. <laughs> I was in slow motion, and I had never hoped for anything more in my life at that moment. And the ball, cling, cling, and then in. And then he jumped and did this celebration jump, and I'm pretty sure I did the exact same thing, probably broke something in the house. I was so excited. Guys, here's the deal. Why do we put so much of our hope in our prayers? And you go, That's, we, we don't pray about those things. Well, maybe you do. I don't know. But why do we put so much hope in our life into such silly things? We do. And so I go like, what if we hoped with as much hope as I had in that moment, what if we hoped with that much, if not greater, that God's kingdom would be established? But that's what I want more than anything. At any given moment, that's what I want. And that's what I will pray for. Guys, that's what Jesus prayed for in John 17, the high priestly prayer, right? Jesus, he's on the scene and he's praying, this is my relationship with the Father. Ah, oh, that's so good. Then he prays, not for the world, but for his disciples. These are the people that God, you gave me, that I invested my gospel message and my gospel life into. I'm praying for them. And then he moves on and he says, oh, but by the way, I also pray for the world because there will be people who believe one day about me when I'm gone, but it will come through my disciples. See, all of a sudden, we realize that you and I are on that John 17 gospel journey. We are a part of that story, and we get to continue that. And here's how Jesus goes, right? He says, he called to himself those whom he desired, and, he, and they came to him. That's where discipleship starts. Jesus calls you, you come. Jesus calls you, you come. That's where discipleship starts, okay? I've got a five-year-old, so I understand this a little bit differently because my daughter, when she wants more screen time or she wants candy or whatever it is, she does this. Dada, dad, can I, talk, can I call you dad? Sure, sure, sweetie, what do you want? I'll make a deal with you. No, you're five. No, dad, seriously, I'll make a deal with you. One more minute. No, we're not doing that. No, seriously, dad, it's okay. Let's just talk. One more minute. No, we're no. Because, sweetheart, this is how this goes. You ask for one minute, and then you'll ask for another, and then you'll ask for another, and then you'll ask for another. She goes, no, dad, seriously, just make a deal. One more minute. No. 
It's the way it goes with a five-year-old. Okay, but let's just take a step back and we go, oh, that's really cute, right? Because that's a five-year-old. Here's the deal. How cute is it? Is it really actually cute that our adult excuses are really just kid excuses disguised in adult language? Is that cute? <laughs> Kinda, I guess. Kind of like big kids. But here's the reality. I think for so many of us, so many of us in life, you know, we look at Jesus and we know that, that following the real Jesus from, a, from, a, from up close and from up here and not from out here, we know that that's what God wants for us. That's what Jesus wants. And yet we say, Jesus, here's the deal. Like, do you, re- do you realize how much I have going on in my life right now? Work has just been slammed. It's so hard. You know everything about what's going on in my marriage? Ah, oh, it's just, that's hard. Do you not realize how little free time I have to myself? Just like, oh, I know, 10,000 people follow me. I know, but discipleship starts now. Discipleship starts now. And he's like, here's the deal. It's not like this, this big, crazy thing. Let's start small. He's like, you want to be a disciple? Here's the first thing. Be with me. Just be with me. Think about how easy that is. Be with me. It comes from the word to exist. He said, here's the deal. I'm going to exist. You just exist in the same space as me. But guess what? Good things will happen. Because when you exist in the same space as Jesus, oh, it's going it's to change your life. Do you ever realize or recognize that, that just by spending time with certain people, good people in your life, like you get better? Like good, you know, bad influence, you know, bad character, you know, corrupts good character, all those types of things. Well, it can be happening with good stuff, right? You know, I remember when I was first dating uh, Nikki, and I don't remember what it was. Actually, I do. I just can't tell you. Um, I said something, and she just looked at me like, really, dude? And I'm like, yep, never saying that again. <laughs> you know, done. <laughs> Want to get married. <laughs> you know, like you just by being around people will make you better. Like just existing in the same space of Jesus. Think about the love, the unconditional nature of, of Jesus' love, the compassion. Some of you guys here this morning just need to be with Jesus. You're just going through a hard time. You're like, man, I just need to sit next to Jesus and just let him give me that big, giant hug. That's where it starts, just existing with Jesus, following him, watching him, listening to him. You know, you know that you think about this in real life. You know, sometimes you just go, hey, what'd you do this weekend? Well, I went and spent time with, you know, so-and-so. Cool, cool, cool. What'd you, what'd you do? Well, we went to a movie. Ah, oh, awesome. Cool. Can you, like, imagine asking the question of the disciples? What'd you guys do this weekend? Well, Take it on, let you guess. Spent some time with Jesus. Oh, cool. What'd you guys do? Eh, we healed some people. No big deal. We healed some people. <laughs> you know, realize how, like, like how unnatural that is, and yet how life-changing it is just to be and exist in the same space as Jesus. Guys, I don't care if you're 9 or 99, and if you've never made a commitment to Jesus or you've been following Jesus all your life, you spend time with Jesus, and it will change your life. If you let it. Judas, it didn't work. But if you let it change your life and more that you see his unconditional love and that mission get mixed together, guess what? You're going to go, man, what changed my life? That's going to change the world. <sighs> Guys, be with Jesus. Being with, though, as good as it is, always has an outlet. You see, it's always an inflow, overflow type of a thing. You see, sometimes I think in life, you know, we're like, yeah, like I know that, like if I begin to overflow, that's going to have these massive ramifications and effects in my faith. So I'm just going to pour and just get half full because that's really all that I can handle right now. And Jesus is like, no, 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 you're drinking from a fire hose, buddy. 
and he just wants to pour and pour and pour, and he wants to get that in you so that way it just naturally comes out and goes everywhere, right? Because here's the deal. He's like, it's not just about being with me. It's about being sent. It's a nuts and a bolts type of a thing. Can't one without the other. This is the way that it's designed to work. I want you to be with me, just to exist in that same space and to take in, absorb, and, and to live in the love that I have. But here's the deal. I'm eventually going to send you out. I want you to go and be with people when I'm not there. You see, Jesus, I think he calls 12, which is big because there's 12 tribes of Israel, right? There's really only two and a half at the time of Jesus. And so really by selecting 12, he's now including in the whole nation and he's offering restoration to all of Israel in that sense. But it's also this anticipation for the way that the kingdom is gonna get built. Because if you move from Mark chapter three all the way over into the book of Acts, when the church starts, you get to Acts 1.8 and here's what you find. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That sounds cool. Oh, great. Guess what's going to happen? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That's the kingdom that Jesus is building. It starts right here. He says, what started here is going to go there, going to go there, going to go there, and in the end, it's going to go everywhere. Boy, that was a massive thing. By the way, in this passage, it says that Jesus sent them out to preach, and some of you guys are like, hey, I was in until you said preach. I'm out. That means that Seth's going to call me and say, hey, can you preach next week? Nah, that's not what it means. This means this, guys. It means talk, converse. Everywhere you go, can you just talk about what you love most? And it's not Michael Jordan. It's not the Bulls. It's not anything else. It's God. Just talk about it as you go. Now, here's the reality, though. When you look, this is like Jesus. This is the king building a kingdom. You think, man, he's going to need a kingly team, isn't he? Look at this picture. I love this. I'm going to stick with Michael Jordan. You're like, I don't know. I'm just like stuck on it for the day, okay? So just live with it, okay? You got the dream team. You got all these different people, Larry Bird, Patrick Ewing, Magic Johnson, David Robinson, Scottie Pippen, of course, Michael Jordan, Charles Barkley. You got all sorts of people in this. And you look at this and you go, guys, this team in 1992 was so dominant in the Barcelona Olympics that they, on average, outscored other teams by 44 points. Like, who would pay to go to that? I mean, I would just because it'd be fun to see. But like, I mean, you're also like, hey, we're going to win. No, we're not. I guess we're not. No, this is boring. Guys, they were so dominant. You look at this, and then you think about Jesus, and you think about an Acts 1-8 mission. You got this dream that's going to go from here to there to there to everywhere. You think that, gosh, this is going to be the cream of the crop team. Who is Jesus going to select? Check it out. He starts with Simon Peter. He says, Simon, he's a fisherman. We already know a little bit about him. He's going to be a fisher of men. Jesus says, here's the deal. I'm going to name you Peter, which is close to the word for rock in Greek. He's like, on you, I'm going to build my church. And Peter's like, yeah, that's awesome. That's great. And how much longer later before Jesus like, get behind me, Satan? And he's like, no, that nickname's going to stick. That's not good. So you got Peter, you got James and John. Right? He says that, I, I give you the name Boanergus, which means sons of thunder. They sound like WWE wrestler guys, you know? Like, like, who are these people? Are they like the muscle of the group? Like, hey, Pharisees, stand away. I got this. I'm protecting Jesus. Maybe they're fearless in a storm, or maybe they just have anger problems. Who was it later on who was arguing about sitting at the right hand and the left hand? It's my turn, my turn. No, I'm going to do it. No, I'm going to do it. Talking about kid problems disguised as adult problems? It's James and John. Jesus is like, whoa, sons of thunder, calm down. Calm down. Let's keep the thunder to a minimum. You know, 
You got James and John. You got Andrew, brother of Peter. Did you know that Andrew was the one who introduced Peter to Jesus? He found Peter and said, hey, here's the deal. Brother, you're the best. I found somebody better. It's Jesus. We should go. Now, all of a sudden, Peter, James, and John, they're the innermost three of Jesus' circle. And Andrew's like, no, I didn't get picked. No, I'm not in the three. What's his thing? You got Philip. He's the eager one. He goes and finds Nathaniel. You got Bartholomew. Don't know a lot about him other than that his name sounds like he throws up a lot. Then you got Matthew, who's the tax collector, right? We know a little bit about him. Everybody hated him, but now he's following Jesus. I'm guessing that tension is not resolved. Then you got Thomas, right? His love language was physical touch because he's like, I'm not going to believe that Jesus is resurrected until I touch the body of Jesus. You got James, who's another, he says, the son of Alphaeus. It's possible that he's brothers with Levi. And you're like, you think that they got along? Boy, that sounds like that might be a little sketchy. You got Thaddeus. Don't know anything about him. I got a cousin named Thaddeus, but I don't know what it means. Simon the Zealot, he hated Rome. He kind of thought that Jesus was going to ride in on this big stallion of a, of a horse with a sword and like overthrow Rome. He hated Rome. And then you got Judas, who's always last. And it comes with this like, noise at the end. It's Judas at the end. Guys, these guys have great qualities. And you see those worked out in the gospel. And we'll see it more and more in Mark. But here's the thing, guys. Here's what I want to point out. This is by far not the dream team. It's not the dream team. This is not who these people are. And Jesus is like, hey, I want to gather you guys together and I want to start a life group. It's ordinary people like you and me. And guys, and this is true in the disciples, and I think it might honestly even be true for us, but these are people who in their natural context would have hated each other. There are people in this room who apart from Jesus, you would not be friends. Because there's something about Jesus at the center. You see, when we look at those people, you got, you got Simon, you know, the zealot, you know, and you got him, and he's next to the tax collector, the sympathizer versus the seller. He's like, I don't want to be in a life group with him. I'm never going to do that because when the focus is on him, it doesn't work. But as soon as my focus is on Jesus, all of a sudden this works. That's who we are. We're a church of people who in our normal context maybe wouldn't have gotten along, but because Jesus is so important to us, it works. This is why we would say, guys, we need to be a church of a people who are united around a clear vision of the real Jesus in the real context of the world that we live in, because that's what we need. Guys, Jesus' plan was to build this gospel kingdom, and what he did is he just called ordinary people to himself. He says two things, I want you to be with me, and I'll send you out. Be with me, and I'll send you out. This is how this ends. Verse 20, it says, then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat see the theme pattern here, right? Couldn't even get away for vacation. Then he comes home and then he came and eat. But he's hungry. He's tired. He stayed up all night praying. This is ministry for Jesus. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. Guys, here's how this kind of wraps up. I just want to finish this for you up here. This whole thing started with the crowd, right? And it's when the crowd heard it's the same word that they heard here versus over here. It was when they heard, they come running to Jesus. But what ends up happening, and if you remember, Jesus says this, is that there's this idea of crushing and there's this idea of pressing. 
You see, all of this is centered in the massive amount of needs. It's the depth of needs and the breadth of the needs of these people. And it's not just the Jews, it's the Gentiles. And it's not just the first century. It's the needs of all people that extend for past, for present, and for all of the future yet to come. And Jesus is like, there's one need that rises to the top, and that's the need for forgiveness. It's sin. It's the sinful nature of humanity. And so when you think about these words, where does this take you? It takes you to the all oppress. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane. In this space, you can kind of check out this picture, right? This is where they would have um, crushed those olives. And in so doing, they grind them up and then they take all of those olives and then they put them in a little basket and then they put them underneath a machine and they begin to press. So there's crushing and there's pressing. Now here's the deal. This is what I think Mark is doing. I think Mark is, is bringing in this gospel language. Some people would disagree with me and that's okay. But I think that there's that crushing and then they're talking about the pressing and they press it once and then they press it twice and then they press it a third time until all of the oil is essentially gone. And the olive has been so mangled that it begins to spill out the bottom into the oil and there's nothing left. And the whole idea is that this press has become a symbol for what Jesus will endure on the cross. That he will exhaust every ounce of God's wrath for the forgiveness of sins. I think Mark is pointing us that direction to the Garden of Gethsemane. If you come over here, then the family, what happens with the family? This is the opposition. There's always gonna be be people who try to to break this up, right? You've got the family, which by the way, sometimes it is your family, sometimes it's the people closest to who you are gonna be in opposition. And what happens is, is they come out and they, they seize him. And that's the exact same word as when, when uh, Judas goes to the garden and, and they arrest him and they go and seize Jesus. So out of the garden to the, of Gethsemane, and, and to being seized. And it's like Mark is pointing us towards the gospel. It's rooted in the gospel. It's rooted in the forgiveness of sins. And this is why I think Mark is so brilliant, is that right tucked into the middle, here's what he does. He says, gospel, gospel, death, death, forgiveness of sins, forgiveness of sins. Oh, by the way, here's Jesus in the center. And here's his 12 disciples, who in their natural context would have hated each other but because of Jesus, it worked. And what we miss is that right tucked in the middle of this this gospel message of the needs and the opposition, we see that the, the, the conduit for the gospel has always been and will always be about disciple making relationships. It's about people who at the end of the day want to be with and be sent. Guys, I want to end, you know, with this question. And I ask this question with all humility, but with all thoughtfulness too. And it's this. Is it possible that what initially attracted you or I to church has unintentionally become a distraction from Christ? Because there's a lot of things that we want at church. But does that actually pull our attention away from Jesus? Because in simple form, here's what Jesus said. Here's discipleship. As we redefine discipleship, he says, it's be with me and be sent. That's his definition. That's the job description. And so as we end, here's your application. First thing is this, just check your pulse. How fast have you been running? Do you need to push pause on your life and do you need to withdraw and get away from the busyness of everything so that way you can just have time with the Father to pray? to stand on the mountaintop with Jesus, to take sight of the crowd and say, God, what would you have me do? Who do you have for me? 
that I can invest my life into. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we wrap up this morning, and as we come out of this, this may be a familiar passage for some, maybe brand new for others. But Lord, I pray that even just in our simplicity here, as we reduce kind of the job description of disciple down into these words, that it would be be with and be sent. And then those things would begin to resonate in our hearts because what we're doing in this moment is that we are redefining what it means to follow Jesus. And in by so doing, we're redefining Christianity in the American church. We're redefining all those things because what we're committed to in this moment is not to follow Jesus from afar, to not fill in the blanks of the story from a distance, but to follow so closely to the real Jesus that the dirt from his sandals clings to our garments. That that would be us. That we would be a people who raise our hand when Jesus calls and says, I want you to come to me. And we say, I want to be with you. And would you send me as well? Lord, we love you so much. May we gather, this is a strange statement, but may we gather every Sunday, but then Monday to Saturday, would we ride into hell and make a mess for you. Amen.